Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and I've never read one of those end-user license agreements. Who has? We've all seen probably thousands of these things. We all just click agree. Who's got the time? So if nobody reads them, do they matter? And if you do read them, what should you know? Peter Kissick, the course designer for Law 204-704, Corporate Law, dropped by to answer these questions and more. He knows contracts, and we get into the details of all the documents nobody actually reads. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. I have probably read thousands, or seen, never read. Mm-hmm. I've probably seen, but never read thousands of these license agreements in my time. I've right. been using computers for a long time, so right. these little screens have been popping right. up, and I've been agreeing for a long time. Sure. Peter, what's what's going on with these? What are they? <laughs> yeah. What am I looking at? These are, I mean, we, we refer to these things as broadly standard form contracts, or contracts of adhesion because they actually predate computer licenses. And you can think back to a simple agreement when you park a car and there's a sign that says, by parking your car, you agree that uh, we, the owner of the parking lot, is not responsible for any damage to your car. That's one of the original standard form contracts or contracts of adhesion. And we see them a lot in the consumer context. For instance, your utilities bill or if you sign up for um, a cell phone or something like that, there will always be probably pre-printed uh, a standard form contract like this. But I think what you're referring to is uh, EULA or EULA, an end-user license agreement that we often see as a pop-up whenever we want to put, uh, oh, I don't know, um, uh, say do iOS or something like that or put some op- operating system onto our computer or a new app or something to that effect. And I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. And you've yeah. probably agreed to them, as you say. When you started off by saying you've read a thousand of them, I'm betting that you are like 99.9% of the rest of the world, and you've never actually read one, or or you don't read them as you go. Uh, sometimes I've sort of scrolled through real quick and thought, hmm, that's interesting, but mm-hmm. I haven't, uh, no, I've never actually, until the other day, for this, I actually yeah. printed out and sat down and read one. They're legal, like they have force sure. in law. No, and, and in fact, um, I've often had, I've had students come to me and say, well, I click on it. It doesn't mean anything, right? Well, to which I answer, well, why did you click something that said I agree or I accept? Uh, the Ontario law, in fact, it's not inconsistent with the law in the rest of the world that says simply by clicking I agree, whether you read it or not, you are bound by those terms. So the simple click of a a mouse click on an icon or um, some sort of box on your computer screen is going to be synonymous with uh, a signature. Right. So read it or not, you're bound. And people have uh, have done some pretty hilarious things with the fact that people don't read these. (laughs) Yeah, it it is one of those ironies, right? People don't think they're bound, but they are. Um, Probably many users of these, the people who create these... um, uh, uh, license agreements or consumer contracts probably count on the fact that people don't read them, um, but it's it's created sort of an interesting sort of a cottage industry of um, uh, strange and and somewhat bizarre and hilarious examples of what has been buried in in, the, in these agreements. Uh, there's one example. Uh, 
PC Pit Stop, I think was the name of the company that buried in its um, uh, EULA um, a provision that said the first person to get back to us will receive a, uh, a prize of $1,000. It was buried in the midst of, of all the terms, and it took them five months to actually give away the $1,000 because nobody bothered to read it. Um, there was another company, I believe it was an antivirus software company, that in on April Fool's Day changed their um, uh, license agreement terms and again buried in the midst of all the verbiage was a provision that said uh, by agreeing to this license you agree that we have a claim against your immortal soul uh, 2,500 people apparently signed up uh, for that uh, that service and, and and signed away their, their soul. Fortunately they amended their agreement on April 2nd to oh, take good. that away. Yes, it's, it's, yes. And, um, I, I guess one of, and, and sort of a slightly different uh, and somewhat humorous uh, and very celebrated example of this um, was um, uh, Van Halen's performance contract. Um, the rock band Van Halen uh, had a provision in their contract that said it was sort of a rider to their standard um, uh, production contract when they were going to when they were going to have a, a concert. It said that the pr promoter shall provide certain things in their dressing room, and they included a, a provision that said they shall have a bowl of M and M's in their dressing room with the brown M and M's taken out. And you're gonna think that's just the eccentricity and vanity of rock stars. Well, actually, it had a true purpose. They said we want to make sure that the promoter actually has read our standard form contract because if they didn't see that provision maybe they didn't read closely the provision that we need in terms of our uh, setup requirements uh, stress on floors lighting right. that kind of thing because that had happened before where they had actually had a, a stage collapse on them so they wanted to use their standard form agreement to catch promoters out right so if they see brown and m&ms in the bowl they know someone's not paying attention and it's time to check everything else that's correct because i mean there's pyrotechnics involved in a van hamlin show absolutely you absolutely wanna, you want to be really careful so I, I think when that that did happen i think david lee roth the uh, the singer from van halen wrote that when that would happen then they would do an extra long sound check and double check everything and then they would build a promoter for that <laughs> right yeah um so in the more in, in the realm of the, the more serious contracts, right. not to say that the aforementioned aren't serious, but I I, I own an iPhone, yep. and so I know I have clicked off on mm -hmm. dozens mm -hmm. of these over time. So I actually printed out mm -hmm. an iPhone end user license agreement. Yep. Uh, I don't have the URL in front of me, but I'll we'll, we'll post it on the the blog when this right. podcast goes right. live. Uh, it is about I'd say about twenty pages long, if that. It's surprisingly readable. Like, I read through it, and I thought, you know, this is not – after studying the law in some of these certificate programs, one of the things I notice about legal writing is that generally fake legal writing seems more legal than real legal writing a lot of the time. <laughs> when I read That's these true. things and I read judgments, I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty accessible stuff. Right. And it wasn't an easy read. It's long no. and it's pretty dull, but it's it's a readable contract. Like, you can go through it and understand pretty much what's going on in here. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think so. I think if anybody took their time, um, they would have a pretty good sense of what was in there. Uh, it's pretty dense. There's right. a lot behind all of the words. As you say, it's not as long as, as, as we might think, although I'm sure it's longer than anyone who simply wants to get on with playing with their iPhone really wants right. to go through. Yeah. 
but still, it's it's not as long as you might think. But as I say, what's behind all of those words? You know, there, there's been a fair bit of uh, industry practice plus common law decisions and the like behind what's written in there. Right, and as you go through it, there's kind of I've noticed there's themes. Yes, it sort of breaks down, and everything kind of. There's a lot of broad categories, and this this won't be exhaustive. But the first one that leapt out at me is there's a number of clauses in here that basically seem to say uh, there's stuff that you can do with this phone, but we don't want you to do it, and we're not responsible if you do. Right. So this is kind of like a copyright violation. Right. Falls in the category of things that you could do with this phone, but you shouldn't do them. Right. But they don't have any. Basically, they're just sort of saying this isn't our fault. Right. And is that to keep third parties from kind of if if you use the iPhone to steal yeah. music, yeah. then Sony can't come after Apple and say this is your fault because they said it's not their fault in this contract that I had to read. That's that's very well put. Yeah. Okay. That's exact. That is exactly right. Um, I think the standard form agreements, it's a relationship between the individual consumer or user and Apple in this particular case. But Apple is trying to use this contract to minimize their legal exposure, not only to the consumer, but to anybody else out there, including um, other um, service providers, other IP providers, intellectual property providers, and governments. So please don't do that illegal activity because we really don't want to have to have any criminal exposure, let alone civil exposure. Please don't use this to steal somebody else's copyright because we don't want that person suing us indirectly or right. facilitating that. So it's, 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 a, it's a method of protection, absolutely. So this is like a contract between me and Apple, but there's also they're considering a lot of third parties absolutely. when they do all the writing to yes. craft this. Yeah. Um, Another broad category. Yeah, um, actually, before you move yeah. on, Matt, if I if you don't mind, no, absolutely. Me, odds are Apple has has considered who they're most likely to be sued by, and it's probably not you, Matt. Right. It's probably to be Google or right. somebody of that level of substance who probably have damages sufficient that they it would it would merit a lawsuit. So right. they're much as they're worried about you or they may not be worried about you, to be honest with you, they're probably more worried about these third parties. Right. So they're protecting themselves from the third parties through the mechanism yes. of the contract. That's correct. Because I can't do things that will tick those third parties off. Right. Or if I do, it's clearly not Apple that did it. That's right. It's me as an individual acting like a jerk. That's right. For the record, that is not absolutely uh, fail-safe. Okay. <laughs> because Google is not a party to this contract. Right. If you go ahead and you know do something that would violate their intellectual property, there is nothing to stop uh, Google from suing um, Apple. Now, Apple could say, hey, that wasn't our fault. Look at this agreement. We said it was Matt's problem. And that may or may not be successful. But nothing can stop Google from still suing Apple because they're right. not a party to the agreement. Okay. Uh, the next broad category is something that I'm calling this might happen, but you can't blame us if it does. That's right. And that, and this is now we're worried about, Matt, you suing Apple. Okay? Right. Okay. So if for some reason the uh, you use your phone in a specific way, whether it's something that was authorized by Apple or not, maybe it's a completely legitimate use for your phone, and you somehow suffer some liability, still can't sue us. Right. So Apple could have done nothing wrong. You can't sue them. 
Apple could have done something entirely wrong in the creation of the phone, the creation of the software on uh, and installation of the software on that, and you still can't sue them. You're going to say, how is that fair? Apple has done something that's caused me injury. Why can't I sue them? We're going to say, well, if we don't have that provision in all of our agreements, what's to stop Matt from launching a lawsuit over any small thing? And since we sell millions of iPhones throughout the world, think of all those potential lawsuits. Right. So we're simply going to say, look, in order to keep the cost of this iPhone down, we're going to say no one can sue us if anything bad happens. And if we didn't have that and we were subject to that civil exposure, the cost of an iPhone would actually rise. But, I mean, they still are to an extent. Like, I can only imagine if iPhones started exploding and taking people's mm -hmm. heads off, right. then there would that clause wouldn't protect them. That's correct. There are limits on how far some of these provisions can go, these uh, uh, disclaimer clauses, for instance, uh, or, or, wa or waiver of liability clauses, more precise. Okay? Right. Um, how far can they go? Do they actually have any bearing? And the courts will give effect to them, okay? But they will not give effect to something that would be unconscionable. Right. Okay? So if it goes to the very heart of what an iPhone should do, and no one should actually um, suffer third-degree burns by putting a phone to their ear in their ordinary course of business, it's unlikely that Apple will, will be able to escape liability. Okay. Uh, so something like there's, like there's some clauses in here about distracted driving. Yeah. Does that fit uh -huh. more into the first case or the second case of you can do this but please don't? Or if you undergo harm while doing this, we can't be blamed for it? Yeah, I think it goes to a little, little of both, to okay. be perfectly honest with you. But they're probably more worried about the, the, the first case than the, than the second case. They don't want, because you're driving along... Um, texting or using your phone and not paying attention and you hit some third party, Apple's probably more worried about that third party coming back okay. against them. Yeah. And um, data overages is another one where if this happens, this is on you. It's not on us. That's right. That's uh, right. And, and in, that, in that sort of situation, they're, they're saying that's truly beyond our control. So we absolutely don't want to have that. What Apple is trying to do here is it, there, there, you could say this is, there are legal um, Justifications behind a lot of things. A lot of these things are business justifications. They are trying to get cost certainty. Right. Okay. So they want to know that when they sell you that iPhone, uh, they know what their costs were in building that iPhone, and they don't want any contingencies going forward. Right. Yeah. And wild lawsuits are definitely a contingency right. you can't plan for, right. so they're trying to That's right. hedge those bets as much That's as right. they can contractually. Right. And which is no different, actually, than when you think about sort of the, uh, the, the waivers that you see or the warnings that you see on any product. A product manufacturer is worried about products liability lawsuits. Right. This is sort of the uh, cell phone equivalent of that. Okay. Yeah. And the the third broad category uh, that I saw all over the place had a lot to do with data collection. Right. So it's basically just saying we are going to be gathering data from you mm -hmm. for a variety of purposes. Right. Like Maps is one where they're yep. saying we're mm -hmm. we're going to we we need your data to provide the service. So we're going to go ahead and take your data right. to provide this service. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's a ton of sort of data use clauses scattered Absolutely. throughout here. Absolutely. Uh, and those fall into a number of different laws. Okay. Um, if we set the United States aside for the moment, and for the record, the, the Apple agreement is probably going to be unique by jurisdiction. They're probably going to revise it slightly jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Um, in Canada, we have uh, private data collection laws. Right. Um, Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, or PEPIDA, actually regulates 
when someone can collect data. So this is complying with the Canadian statute. Okay, um, that's true in the European Union, which whose laws are even stronger. Um, the United States doesn't have such a statute, but they certainly have um, tort law that will apply when someone has uh, some, for instance, could sue for invasion of privacy or something to that equivalent of that effect. And we have uh, a variant of that in Canada as well. So there's common law reasons for this, but there's a lot of statutory regulation that uh, Apple's complying with. Right. And I mean, and the other, the other big piece of language I see in here is it's mainly sort of licensing stuff. Yeah. It's we use this, but it's a license of that, and we use this, and it's a license of this other thing. And I, I guess they just kind of have to put that in for, well, legal reasons. Well, yeah, they are they are doing it for legal reasons. Again, uh, their uh, their iPhone is based on other to some degree is based on other people's intellectual property. They've entered into agreements as well as there's some statutory language that protects copyrights, trademarks, th that sort of thing. Of, of third parties and are saying if you so some uh, uh, third party supplier provides something that is integral to an iPhone part of the agreement that license licenses that uh, material to Apple uh, is going to say and you must I we grant you this license and you must tell everybody that you have a license that that's not proprietary or owned by Apple and so they're checking off a box in their contractual obligations right. really it doesn't really impact on you whatsoever and you probably don't really care but they're simply making sure that people realize that this is not all owned by Apple so there is a massive section of this that's in all caps oh, good why why suddenly the shift from regular case typing to there's like about so oh, I'd say three three pages in total in here. Yeah. We're suddenly just shift. To, is this to denote that this is the most important part of the contract? It's very interesting that you you point out that it's three pages long. It's supposed to point out the most unusual or most onerous terms in the uh, in the standard form contract. But yeah, as you say, it's about thirty percent of the agreement seems right. to be in caps. Some of it is not just in caps, but it's in bold as well. I guess they really want you to notice yeah. that, and that's literally what the law is. The old English law that's been adopted in 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 common law Canada is that in any standard form contract, the courts will accept that. But usually standard form contracts are one-sided. They are there to protect the service provider, the Apple, uh, Rogers, or, or, or Bell, or somebody to that effect, and not you, the consumer. Again, the point being that we're trying to keep our costs down. The courts will enforce those because you clicked, I agree. But there are some things that tick off the courts and say, we're not going to enforce that. We've already mentioned the unconscionable clauses. But the other point under the old Anglo-Canadian law is that you've got to give notice of terms that would be unusual or unexpected by the consumer, were the consumer to actually read them, right. or that they would be onerous. And by onerous, we mean we're flipping the, um, uh, the, the onus, we're flipping the protection from the, what would typically be borne by the service provider onto you. You're accepting the risk yourself. So um, a, a waiver of any liability. Okay. Um, a disclaimer saying, "Hey, we don't, we don't, we Apple don't promise that this iPhone will actually do what it says it does, and you can't sue us." Those things, where ordinarily that would be their obligation, those are the provisions that are typically put in capital letters or in bold because they're supposed to be providing notice to you. Hey, look at this; it's in bold and caps, you know, and sort of a, our text speak now. You put it all in caps; they're yelling at you, yep. and that's the uh, standard form contract equivalent of that. Um, 
And if they don't do that, the courts have said, well, we're not going to enforce that. So onerousness is kind of a comeback to these, these contracts, or is it? In the sense that they are, from a consumer's perspective? From, from my consumer's perspective, they've had to do this, because if they didn't do this, I, uh, a court could theoretically say, no, this contract isn't relevant, because you've, yeah. you've buried some very important language, yes, and you correct. haven't made it easy yeah. to read, and you haven't made it right. obvious. Correct. Uh, is, it, is it possible of contracts that are just too big for someone to read? Like, yeah. Um, our laws have, n it's interesting that our laws have gone down this road, and they, then they seem to have stopped. Um, and people have made the complaint that some service providers who aren't as, as considerate as Apple is here, as, as you point out, this actually does read grammatically well. Um, there are others who have uh, contracts that are two or three times the length of this in, in legalese. And how could you ever actually find this language? And it is buried. And the courts still seem to have accepted them. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I think the courts are probably waiting for uh, governments to come along and say, in the interest of consumer protection, you must uh, have this, these particular terms. Uh, you must write them in a certain way. And our federal government has gone down that road a little bit with cell phone contracts now. Right. Right. Okay. They have to be, to some extent, understandable to the layperson. Correct. It's, it's been kind of weirdly rewarding to read this. I'm glad I did it. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to do this again. Good. So how much does this map? Like if I have read Apple's terms and conditions, right. can I sort of say that I get the gist of most of these or are they unique enough that really I should sit down with my Rogers internet provider contract and read it as well? Or is it just going to be kind of the same stuff in a different order? They are broadly the same. We covered certain categories that you're certainly going to see in virtually every standard form contract, a waiver of liability. Right. Okay. A capping of life. Even if you somehow manage to successfully sue us, it's cap our, our liability is capped at a certain amount of money. Um, these third party obligations. They're all going to, you're gonna see all of those things. Um, I think uh, one of the key things here to, to take away is where there's gonna be a variation is what they're disclaiming from contract to contract. And what a cell phone provider is gonna disclaim is gonna be different than what um, um, Apple is gonna be disclaiming, for instance. So I still think it's worthwhile, especially when you're signing a contract and you're, and you're, you're clicking on terms or looking at a standard form contract for something that where somebody's providing a service to you. Apple's providing you with a phone. Um, Bell or Rogers are providing you with, with, with a cell phone. Look and see what is, in fact, disclaimed and what is not. I think that's quite valuable to you. But otherwise, yes, they're broadly similar. Right. And broadly speaking, I should be able to go through and look for capital letters and bolding to see what's yes. the most onerous that, in terms that, of that. what puts the highest burden on me as a consumer should be apparent. Interestingly, the, the burden on you and consumer is extremely high. You're deemed to have read these terms and understood these terms simply by clicking I agree. Right. Okay. So the onus is, in fact, on you. But you're right. If you look through and read the bold print and the capital letters, those are going to be the most, shall we say, injurious provisions Okay. for you. Okay. Okay. Well, this has been really helpful. Thank you, yeah, Peter. It's, it's not. It's not often anyone uh, is is struck so fancifully by standard foreign contracts that I get a chance to talk about it. So thank you, Matt. Thanks to Peter Kissick, the designer of our corporate law course. If you're interested in contracts and business law, you should take a look at Law Two Hundred Four Seven Hundred Four, Corporate Law 
at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who is also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Original illustrations for each podcast are created by Valerie Desrochers. You can see them at takelaw.ca and visit Valerie's portfolio at vdesrochers.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.